Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes through modern, liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome everyone, thanks for listening in. This week we're reading Bechukotai. It is the last parsha in the book of Leviticus. Now a lot of Leviticus has dealt with sacrifice and diagnosis of skin disease and impurity. These last couple of parshiot have been outliers in that they've dealt with agricultural matters. Last week we read about the sabbatical year, and this week in Bechukotai, We read about the theology that our ancient ancestors believed connected them with the land with God, and it's a challenging theology of reward and punishment. Now, to discuss this with me, I've invited Rabbi Karen Kadar. She's the rabbi of a congregation in the Chicago area, and she's also the author of a new book on prayer. As usual, we'll spend about the first seven to ten minutes talking about the weekly Torah portion, and then we'll continue with a bonus interview in which we expand that into a more general discussion about prayer and spirituality and mindfulness and being present. Rabbi Karen Kadar, welcome to 7-Minute Torah. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm going to introduce you more fully in the second half of our interview, but for now, I'll just mention that you are an author, a poet, an inspirational speaker, and that you are senior rabbi of Congregation B'nai Yehoshua Beth Elohim in Deerfield, Illinois. Hopefully I pronounced all that correctly. You totally did. We call it BJBE and soon to be Emerita. So let's talk Parsha. We're reading this week from Bechukotai, which is the last Parsha in the book of Leviticus. We're bringing Vayikra to an end here. And Bechukotai contains some, we might say, some challenging material. We see a lot more of this in Deuteronomy coming up later in the Torah, but we see a fair amount here of what we call reward and punishment theology. It essentially sounds like if you follow my laws, God's laws, then all these good things will happen to you. And if you don't, then be prepared for all of these punishments. And it's really hard to read in many ways as a modern person, as a liberal Jew. So I wonder if we could talk about that for a little while. What do you think this is doing here? And what do you make of it? Thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate the question. Every time this Parsha comes up, it is an opportunity to sharpen our own theology about, well, what do we believe about God? And what do we believe about the relationship between people and God and God and the people? And is there a relationship? One of the beautiful things about being a progressive liberal uh, thinker and seeker and religious Jew is that we look at Torah as text that has holy sparks in it and enables us to take off and fly in a way of contemplation, um, introspection, but not tied to the literal meaning of the text. Mm. We're not fundamentalists. So much of what we read in Torah, uh, and particularly what is said about God in my own personal theology, is metaphor. Uh, actually, Maimonides also says that it's it's in Rashi. It's in the it's in the language of people, and so the metaphors are not offensive as long as you understand them to be metaphors, and also um, contradictory metaphors. 
So sometimes God is loving and compassionate, and sometimes God is angry and vengeful, and sometimes God is expressed in male language, and sometimes God is expressed in female language. And it's the variety, the totality of the way in which we express or try to articulate that ineffable, that that thing that cannot be articulated, that gives us a depth to our spiritual search. Yeah, in some ways, I think what's so challenging about a text like this is when you try to read it literally, when you see the bad things that happen to us, getting sick or suffering as somehow results of God's punishment, then that becomes a God that I don't care to believe in, or it doesn't sound like God as I understand God. But when you look at these as metaphorical and also as maybe as parts of a whole, as you're saying, as parts of the whole life we're living, well, sometimes we do suffer. Sometimes things go very well for us, and sometimes things feel like they're going very badly for us. And so in those moments, we do need to sort of reach out and to try to understand what role God is playing in those experiences we're having. Absolutely agree with you. You know, in the in the mathematical world, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. In the spiritual world, the shortest distance between two points is a curve or a spiral or a zigzag. So there is no connect the dots theology. If you do this, this will happen to you. Right. It is much more complex. The cause and effect of the universe is ultimately mystery. We all know that we can pray and we can pray by the bed of a loved one for healing. And perhaps there is great, enormous spiritual healing. And nevertheless, the person dies uh, because death is inevitable. So you can pray your entire life for the healing and the longevity of your father, your mother, your spouse, even your child. And that eventually will, will give way to a different reality. However, I do love the thought of the, the butterfly effect. As you and your listeners remember, a meteorologist was asked to, um, to create a formula and a measurement if a butterfly flaps its wing in one part of the world, will it affect a hurricane in the other part of the world? And mm. he, he measures and he calculates and he comes up with formulas and he comes up with the conclusion, well, yes, actually, there is a flapping of the wing in one part of the world, ever so gentle, that will affect the hurricane in the other. So there is most definitely a cause and effect of a open heart and a closed heart, hmm. of anger or of love, of a generosity or of a constriction. Those things have consequences. And in the spiritual world, there is no question in my mind that the way we walk through this world and engage in the mystery of the universe and engage in the spirit and the souls of others and the hearts of others will affect our lives and will affect others. Mm -hmm. But in a direct connect the dot ways, as is in this particular Parsha, I don't believe so. And yet this Parsha does ask us to delve into what in my world do I cause and what effect in my world do I have? I think there's really something to this idea that what you put out into the world, you get back. If you put out generosity into the world, you are more likely 
to receive generosity from the world. If you put out positivity into the world, you are more likely to receive positivity back. And so when I look at this Parsha, I also see that question of what are the rewards for my actions and what are the punishments? And maybe reward and punishment even isn't even the best language. You're using the language of cause and effect, which I think is very powerful. Yeah, reward and punishment has with it judgment. And uh, from my experience, living a world based on judgment is not particularly emotionally and spiritually lucrative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the opposite of judgment is curiosity. So this is how I put exactly what you were just saying. You know, the universe says yes. So if you say, you know, I'll never be good enough. The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And if you say, oh, I can't believe I just said that. That was so stupid. The universe says yes. And if you say, I'm a loving human being. The universe says yes. Hmm. And if you say, I am worthy of love and forgiveness, the universe will say yes. So the answer is yes. The question is, what is the question? Right, which actually, I think, brings us back around to prayer. I mean, you talked about sitting by the bedside of a, of a dying loved one and praying, and that there can be healing that happens, and there can be connection that happens and they still die because we all die. So then I think the question really is, what does it mean for a prayer to be answered? That, you know, my prayers for healing can't all end in there not being suffering and death in the world, which means prayer can't ultimately be about getting whatever I want from God. Prayer has to also be about connection and about spiritual healing and about um, the ways that we make meaning in the world. Yes. And prayer is about living a world that is expansive, a world that that is softer and less harsh, a world that engages in all those intangibles and brings us um, greater meaning because we've engaged with those intangibles like beauty Hmm. and love and hope and optimism, which one could argue is a synonym for God. And so when I engage in the beauty of the universe, am I engaging in God? If, when I sit quietly in prayer and, I, and my heart is opened, am I engaging with God? And so in that way, there is, um, there is great healing and openness through prayer, but not in a, please, can I pass this test or will my favorite team win? That's too small. Prayer asks us to be big. What I took away from what you just said was the idea of interacting with God, that in every action, everything we do, we are somehow interacting with God. And, and ultimately, I think that's actually what the Torah is saying. You know, if I, if I look at the first line of the Chukotai, it says, In telechu tishmeru. If you follow my laws and observe my commandments, then... I will do all these good things for you. We may struggle with that, as we said before, in a literal way. I think the message from that is exactly what you just said. In everything we do, we are interacting with God. When you plant seeds in the soil, as our ancestors did, and that's what they're talking about here, you are interacting with God. And when you plant seeds of generosity, kindness, you might think that you're interacting only with the person in front of you, but you are interacting with God. It, it's really very beautiful. And to go back, as you said, this is an agricultural based to, to further your thought. Um, just take the blessing over bread. Blessed are you, O God, who brings forth bread from the earth, which is actually not true. God does not bring forth bread from the earth. 
That's true. You can't so, get a loaf of bread out of the earth, right? You cannot get a loaf of bread out of the earth, uh, but actually you really can. So it's not that God is present in all things. It's that when we are present in all things and become fully human in the human endeavor of bringing meaning to this world and purpose to this world and goodness to this world and bounty to this world, then we're in partnership with some mysterious divine spirit. So there is, there is the God factor to bread coming forth from the earth. And, and so plant the seed and be kind to the workers that develop that seed and turn it into, into wheat and that harvest it and that bring it to your shelf and bring it to your home. And that it's that entire relationship of being fully human while aware of the fact that we are also 100% in the presence of something grand and divine that brings forth the bounty. That's beautiful. And to that, I'll say amen. So with that segue, let's, um, let's take a short break and I'll invite our listeners to stick around because we have lots more to talk about uh, in just a few moments. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. So Rabbi Karen Kadar, welcome back. I want to just continue the conversation we're having here because we're talking about prayer and what you do, at least part of what you do as a rabbi and as an author is to think about prayer. So I wonder if you can maybe continue the thread you're on there and talk to us a little bit about your own relationship with prayer and why writing prayer and and, and why writing about prayer is so important to you. You know, sometimes you sit by the window in a quiet place in your home and the, uh, the sun shines in a particular way and the leaves sparkle as a result of the sun and there is a wordless moment that is so profound and all you can say is amen and that is prayer. And sometimes the world converges and collapses upon you in such a devastating and profound way. And all you can do is offer this incredible guttural sigh, again, wordless, and that's prayer. And you need to say amen. Hmm. And every now and then you find the words that can articulate those experiences of beauty or despair or hope. And in that magical combination of words, something opens up in you. And because of that articulation, because of that way of expressing what it is that is so fundamentally human and our experience, you say amen. Hmm. So prayer exists both in words and in sighs and in vistas um, and in, um, in books, in embraces, if you're open to it. Yes, it does. It's amazing how much of prayer isn't words. We usually think of prayer as 
saying words to God. But what you're saying, and I agree completely, is that prayer is the way that we are present. Prayer is how we experience the world. It's how we think. It's how we feel in the moment. And then it's how we react, whether it's the sighs or the feelings or in those rare occasions, the, the actual words that we manage to get out in those moments. You know, when I, when I think about a prayer book, and in a minute we're going to talk about your book, which is a prayer book of sorts. When I think about the prayer book, the Jewish prayer book, I'm often amazed by the fact that it is actually, it is actually layers upon layers of people's personal prayers. I think, you know, when we, for example, when you look at the Amidah, you're looking at prayers that were written by rabbis close to 2000 years ago. When you read Lecha Dodi, that song that we sing on Friday night, you're looking at a, a love poem that was written, and we know who wrote it. It was Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz Halevi, and we know when he wrote it. It was about 500 years ago. You know, or you look at some of these poems that get thrown in here and there in between the Shema and in the morning blessings, and you know that they were written by somebody at some point in history who was reacting to or responding to some experience in the world, the experience of waking up in the morning, or the experience of uh, seeing a beautiful sunset, or the experience of losing a loved one. And so our prayer book and our Jewish prayer life is actually, in many ways, a compilation of the experiences of our people over the, courses, over the course of centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And I know that in my own personal experience, when I read the prayer book, I feel connected to those people. I feel like I am participating in something that's been going on for a very, very long time. That's a beautiful way to express it. And when you sit um, in a synagogue um, and open up a prayer book, you have an invitation to dialogue with those prayers. For instance, in the Amidah, um, one of the most beautiful phrases I find in the prayers well, there's so many, but one of the most beautiful phrases is Michael Chaim Bechesed, which is often translated um, and sustains the world in loving kindness. But those of us who are fortunate enough to know Hebrew, we, we know that the word Michael um, is similar to the word Kli, which means vessel. And the word Chesed can be translated as. Um, as grace, as love, something that is overflowing um, with um, compassion and kindness. And so what this says is talking about metaphors, again, of God and our experience is that the world is sustained as if it was an overflowing vessel hmm. of love, of grace, of kindness. And <laughs> if I want to buy into a reality of the world, that is a beautiful image for me to hold on to. And in, indeed, in my own personal practice, and I like to have things around me that, um, that are tangibles of my philosophical and theological um, beliefs, I have, I have bowls everywhere. And I imagine bowls not to be empty, but overflowing with compassion and grace. Hmm. I love that. And actually, that reminds me of a piece that I read in your book. I'm on page 53, and I'll just mention for our listeners that your book is called Amen. Is it okay if I read a piece from your book? Of course. This is on page 53, and it's called Abundance. Two perspectives govern our way of seeing the world, abundance and scarcity. These perspectives are a choice. 
The cup is not half empty, nor is it half full. Rather, our cup runneth over, overflowing. So you're actually quoting here from Psalm 23. My cup overflows, or my cup runs over. And it, I have to tell you, it had not occurred to me to understand that in terms of abundance and scarcity. But we do, we walk through the world understanding everything as a blessing or a curse. The cup is half empty, the cup is half full. And Judaism encourages us to understand ourselves then as potentially overflowing vessels, vessels overflowing with loving kindness as the the lives that we're living as overflowing with loving kindness. doesn't mean that everything always feels amazing, but that there's always that potential for loving kindness, for generosity, for goodness, for grace to be overflowing in ourselves and in the world around you. So I appreciated the way that you quoted here from the psalm and then brought it home for me to something that that matters to me, something that I think about in my own life. Thank you. And and the psalm, which is a powerful psalm, which of course we associate with funerals, but the psalm then goes on. And if I'm living in a world where the cup is overflowing, what is going to pursue me? Even as I sit in the valley of shadows, what will pursue me is tova chesed, goodness, and again, love and grace. And even when we say Kiddush, as you know, we're supposed to technically, sometimes those Kiddush cups have little plates underneath. Mm -hmm. And the reason for the plates is because we're supposed to fill the Kiddush cup to the brink so that a little drop falls out, literally overflowing. We reenact that, um, that spiritual wish and that prayer for overflowing abundance every Friday, mm -hmm. every time we offer Kiddush. And we allow the the wine, the goodness, the, the bounty to overflow. Yeah, it's a reminder, again, that prayer is not only words. Prayer is actions, prayer is metaphors, prayer is the things that we think about. So tell me about your book. It's called Amen, as I mentioned. And um, it is a book of prayers, as I understand it. Or actually, let me ask you, what is it? Are these prayers? Are they poems? How How do you imagine your compositions here? being used and playing a role in the life in the life of the reader well yes um they are they are prayers they are they are poems they are expressions i hope of our deepest desires for understanding and for connection um, the book has a series of prayers um, in the beginning of it and then there is a section in the book of um, what I call focus phrases, so that if we want to sit by that chair by the window and we just want to delve in um, in a particular phrase and use that as a phrase to contemplate, I offer a, a series of phrases that you can use for, for contemplation. So it's not only prayers, but it also invites you into a mindfulness practice. Which I guess relates to what it says in the subtitle, which is seeking presence through mm -hmm. prayer, poetry, and mindfulness practice. Are you talking here about our own presence or are you talking about seeking the presence of God through prayer? Oh, I love that. I didn't ever think about that. Hmm. Sure. That's absolutely true. I was talking about our own presence, but yes, to seeking the presence of God. That's beautiful. It just goes to show you, you know, you write something and then exactly what it is and whether it has worth or what it really means uh, doesn't become your business any longer. You give it over <laughs> to the folk process, right? Right. <laughs> but, you know, maybe 
you know, if Martin Buber talks about uh, God as being present in relationships and the I and thou, maybe God's presence and our presence are actually not so different anyway. Maybe it's through being present that you actually get to experience God's presence. You know, think about the uh, sitting at the window looking out at the sky like you're talking about. That sky is always there, but it's only when I notice it that I experience God's presence. So I think in a sense, maybe they're not so different from each other. I have to be present in order to recognize and experience the presence of God. Yes. And the way the Torah um, expresses that moment with Moses in the burning bush, if you look at it carefully, he walked by it a thousand times uh, and never really noticed it. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning has a beautiful poem um, that I can't uh, quote directly, but it says something to the effect of um, the bush is always aflame. And for those who don't know to take off their shoes, they pick blackberries. Yeah, you need to look, you need to see and be aware of the presence. Um, so I wonder if you might read us a couple of favorite pieces from your book. Oh, I would love to. How about perpetual crossing? So th this is this talks about forgiveness forgiveness as a bridge. As I said, the spiritual world is not at all linear. Linear, um, It is sometimes a spiral where we, we experience things through a different perspective and whatever, whatever was that thing that hurt us or injured us as a child will always be our thing. But as we try to deepen and grow um, and open our hearts in forgiveness, uh, the turnaround of that spiral becomes quicker and quicker. And we see things from a different perspective. Hmm. Um, so here's the, the poem, the prayer called Perpetual Crossings. I walk softly on the damp wooded path. Mostly I look down and see the ground beneath my feet is soft earth, gentle moss, and of course, fallen leaves, which like angels have floated to the earth, forming a gently lit path in the woods. And for every chasm along the way, for every fast moving stream or deeply cut valley, a bridge appears. It seems that there's always a way across, a way to get to the other side of fear, of sadness, of disappointment. There's always a way. Maybe goodness is the bridge or beauty is the bridge. Love is the bridge. Forgiveness is a bridge. Of this I am sure, the path is eternal it is our life and the length of our days. And the bridge is eternal. There are many ways to cross what seems impossible. Stones in the river, ropes suspended, planks of wood, arches of steel like love, patience, acceptance, and forgiveness. It's beautiful. I'm struck by the, the image of the bridge. Um, the first thing that came to my mind was actually Rabbi Nachman's poem about the world being a narrow bridge. He says the the whole world is a very narrow bridge and the most important thing is not to be afraid that we we put one step in front of the other that we make our way across this bridge with help presumably. We need help from each other, we need help from God. And so you've delineated here maybe what are some of the things that help us get across? Goodness, love, forgiveness that these things help us bridge the chasm. They help us make it across the more difficult moments in, in life. And in fact, they are opposite of fear because at most definitely I had Rabbi Nachman's um, 
beautiful image in mind. In the spiritual world, um, the opposite of love is fear, uh, not hate. And the opposite of love is fear. And the fear is fear of not being loved, of not having love. So all bad behavior, all negative emotions, all of those things that make us twitch and, and turn like disappointment and anger and guilt and revenge and violence, all those things are fear-based, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the more we can not be afraid, as Rabbi Nachman says, uh, and walk across the bridge, which are arches of steel with love and intention, uh, the more fully human we can become. Mm -hmm. Well, and from a psychological perspective, I think that's true. The more that we circle the wagons, the fewer options we can see and the less generous we can be. And in order to receive generosity, we often need to give. We need to give the opportunity to others to help us. And you can't actually give that when you're feeling afraid. The other image I was really struck by here, toward the end of the poem you write, of this I am sure, the path is eternal, it is our life and the length of our days. This is a, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a quote of, um, of a prayer from our prayer book. It is the quote of a, trans a translation of a previous version of the current prayer book, absolutely. The hem chayenu v'orach yamenu is the Hebrew. And so it's in, in, the, in the current prayer book, Mishkan Tfila, I think it's translated differently in Gates of Prayer, it was translated, these are the length of our days. And it goes 100% back to today's, to the Torah portion that we're talking about, whereas um, this, this is, you want to know what the law of life is? And, and the whole concept that we have the law of life is such a powerful, beautiful concept that we are governed by certain spiritual principles and laws. And you want to know what the law of life is? You want a life of goodness? you want a life of mercy, you want a life of meaning and purpose, then walk the bridge. Walk the bridge with love and less fear. Uh, will you read us another piece? Sure. At page 84, this talks about um, the creation story, which to me is one of the abiding metaphors. Um, in the beginning, there was darkness, there was chaos, there was depth, there was water, and then God said, let there be light. Uh, and then there was goodness. And this myth that we live by as Jews um, is incredibly profound. And Rashi and the rabbis take it further and they say, so, so what is this light that was created? Because the sun and the moon come a couple of days later and they answer, well, it's the light of righteousness. Hmm. And so the truth of who all of us are, are the light of righteousness. And the spiritual path is to reveal uh, and uncover and embrace and um, free that light of righteousness that was given us, given to us to go into the physics world now from the very days of creation, because energy is not, is neither destroyed or created. What was there once is always there. And so the truth of who we are is light, release it. And so that's the foundation of this, of this prayer, which I'll oh, read. All right. It's called Make of Me a Vessel. I call upon the deep, the dark, the hovering spirit, the God of creation, the muse of the creative impulse. Make of me a vessel ready to receive the loving stream from a transcendent good, 
that it may course its way through my discerning mind and complicated heart and the purity of my soul, O aspirational soul, so that I may be a force for good. For in the beginning, it was very good. And this is our human destiny, to be created in the image of those early, earliest moments of divinity, when the darkness danced in flowing circles with light and beauty cast a hue upon all things simple and complex, known and unknown, returning, always turning towards the deep, dark, hovering spirit of the God of creation. I call upon you, creator of the universe. Make of me a vessel, a mere image of paradoxical beauty, of mystery, of oneness, and love, and love. Beautiful. And again, that image of us as vessels, which you brought up earlier, that we each have the ability to be a vessel, again, of love, of generosity, of all this goodness that we can put out into the world. You know, the idea of being a vessel, that's actually language that in Hebrew we use for clergy. We call clergy, we call spiritual leaders, clay kodesh, which means vessels of holiness. I think though, if I understand correctly, you're suggesting here that we all are clay kodesh, that we all, all of us humans, get to be vessels of holiness in the world. 100% right. I, I mean, I believe so. You know, the difference is, clergy spend a lifetime um, engaging in that. Our job is to, to enter into the mystery and to ponder things that are not understandable and to find the words to express it to people, to animate um, the, the beauty and the presence within others. That's our work. But everybody, of course, was given that same spark and can um, become a vessel of goodness. And in fact, are obligated to do so. Yeah, I often think of the role of clergy, and you and I are both congregational rabbis. To me, the, the role of clergy is to facilitate that for everyone else. So, you know, unlike some religious traditions, we don't have any special magical powers, you and I. We can't, we can't perform sacraments. We can't do anything that another Jew can't do. You don't need a rabbi to read Torah or lead services or get married or officiate a bar bat mitzvah. What we do, I often joke, I'm just the one in the room that knows the most Aramaic, <laughs> right? So what we do is to facilitate this holiness for other people. And so I don't want to hang your mezuzah for you. I want to help you hang your mezuzah. You know, I don't want to pray on your behalf. I want to be there with you to help facilitate you as clay kodesh as a vessel of holiness and maybe the whole idea behind this book is that anyone can write prayer that prayer is the the way that we experience and express these feelings of awe that um that come into our hearts and some of us are better writers than others you're clearly one of the best um but i i love that you've in some way democratized prayer for us by giving us all the ability to um to create our own tefillah, to create our own experiences of, of prayerfulness in the world. Yes, thank you. Let's just talk, you know, about the book for a second. It's available through CCAR Press. And um, if people were to go and find this book and purchase this book, there would be pieces in it for daily contemplation. What, um, what kinds of poetry would they find here and how might they use it? I love that question. Yes, it's available through CCR Press. It's also available on Amazon and wherever wherever books are sold. 
Uh, the book is not written in a in a straight line. Uh, if you if you take five minutes of your day and a spot in your home um, that you can have that five minutes uninterrupted. Uh, and in that spot in your home, there are stacks of books and maybe a candle and pretty things and maybe a view to the outside. And you take this book or, or truly any book and you thumb through the pages and suddenly something makes you stop. And if you obey that inner voice that said, wait, stop here, then what happens is the prayer finds you. You don't have to find it. The prayer that just happens to find you in that moment has for you a message that is abiding, that can soften your day, that can give it context and perspective. And so you it's not the kind of book that you read. It's the kind of book that you companion. Hmm. I just wrote down the prayer finds you. You don't have to find it. I, I think I'm going to put that on my wall. <laughs> and I think it is, you know, reading through your poetry is such an opportunity to focus and to be present. And truly with, you know, you can do the same thing with the prayer book. As we pointed out earlier, you can do it with lots of books of prayer and poetry. Uh, but that's really what you've given us here is the opportunity to stop and be present to to dwell on the meaning and the import and the experience of certain words and what they and what they bring up for us. Thank you. You um, you mentioned earlier that you were about to be Rabbi Emerita. So first of all, Mazel Tov on your upcoming retirement. Um, are there more books that you're working on, more um, ideas that are germinating there for the next step? Absolutely. There are always more books. I started writing when I was in third grade when I could actually write. And, and the, 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 um, the physical nature of writing, holding that thick pen with on that paper was just to me a miracle and so you know writing for, for a writer writing is a compulsion it's something it's a voice that will not be silenced um, you can try to silence it you can say to yourself I don't have time I can't write this is kind of silly no one's going to read there's a lot of negative self-talk um, that I think every writer experiences. I know every writer experiences and writing is a solitary um, event, but because it's a compulsion, a voice that will not be silenced, there is always the next pull to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, on my computer, um, I've gotten away, although I have many, many notebooks where I still write notebooks, but I compose my books on computer are several several files opened. I could go in this direction. I could go in that direction. And I, I go towards the tug, the muse invites me and I, and I've learned to follow her and be very obedient to her and not to snub her at all. Um, the working title that I have now on the next book, having come out of these last two years that have been so extraordinary for all of us and for the, for the spirit. Um, so the working title of the next book is probably um, from fear to faith. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like something we all need right now. You teach what you need to learn. <laughs> that, that's what I say about my sermons also. You know, someone comes up and says, Rabbi, I appreciated that sermon. And I always just say that was what I needed to hear. I'm just writing for myself. Yeah. Is it more poetry that you're writing, more prayer? Um, probably. I'll probably do another, this is my fifth book, but it's the first one of prayer and poetry. And I, um, 
it'll it'll be prayers, poetry, and probably uh, creative vignettes of you know like three hundred words. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to it uh, when you get there. Thank you. So I have two more questions. These are the questions I ask every guest that I um, that I interview. I like to ask people about ritual and about books. And so the question is, is there one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful? We've talked a lot about prayer here, but is there one ritual action, Jewish action that has been particularly meaningful in your life? And then the second question, I'll give you a minute to think about this while you're talking about the other one, is uh, what book do we all need to read? What book do we all need to read? Mm -hmm. There's so many. I read a lot of Rilke, R-I-L-K-E. I read a lot of Haviz, H-A-F-I-Z. Um, those are two. I, I read a lot of non-Jewish um, books because they use words differently than I do. And therefore, it, it, it expands my vocabulary and twists my phrases a little bit differently. Um, John O'Donohue has a beautiful book on beauty. Um, so those are, those are some authors that I, that I can throw out that are of the non-Jewish world. Um, I'll tell you what ritual I am looking forward to, you know, as you, I've lived really an extraordinary life. Um, and retirement is another whole conversation that uh, maybe if you invite me back, we'll, we'll, we can talk about what that shift is. And I'm actually calling it a shifting rather than a retirement. But one of the rituals um, that I'll be able to engage in that I haven't been able to engage in because my, my work is so public is that of, um, of cooking of, of the meal. Um, so, you know, it, for, for most people, Passover is about the meal and Rosh Hashanah is about the meal. And for me, it was about delivering the Seder and delivering the sermon. And I would love to um, bring back the ritual of the dinner party that is grounded in important conversation um, of reading, of philosophical inquiry um, around really good food, a good drink, and uh, fascinating conversation. So I'm looking forward to entering into that new ritual. Wonderful. I mean, Judaism is so grounded on food, right? Every ritual we have has special foods built in and they have meanings, except for Yom Kippur, which is about no food, and in that way is very much about food, I think. And that's a conversation for another day. But I appreciate that image of cooking and creating a meal as Jewish ritual, because I think that it is, in some ways it is what Jews have been doing for the longest, sitting around tables, eating special foods, and having important conversations. And that's pretty much what, what we do best as Jews. Well, I want to thank you, Rabbi Karen Kadar, for spending some time talking with me today. Um, the book is called Amen, Seeking Presence with Prayer, Poetry, and Mindfulness Practice. Um, and thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Rabbi Karen Kadar for joining me. And I highly recommend checking out the poetry and prayers in her book, Amen. And speaking of which, our last two guests have both been liturgists, writers of prayer. I'm wondering if any of you out there are also writers of prayer. If you are, join us in the Facebook group and 
Maybe we can share some of our compositions with each other. I'm looking forward to being back with you next week when we start the Book of Numbers and begin our journey through the wilderness. See you then. <laughs>